Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25? For those of you who are new, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And last week we entered into chapter 25. And what we did, we said it was really a continuation of a teaching that Jesus began to give his disciples back in chapter 24 in response to a couple of questions they had asked him. He said at the end of chapter 23, he was going away. And they wanted to know, well, what will be the signs of your return? Where you're going to end this present evil age of man's rebellion and establish the glorious kingdom age. That's what Matthew 24 and 25 are built around. And so in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 28, the Lord lays out the signs that will precede his second coming, culminating with his return to the earth in power and great glory, which he talks about in verses 29 to 31. And from there, he proceeded to give them, to all of us really, a series of admonitions and warnings in parable form that stress the importance of being ready for his coming. Chapter 25, Jesus continues teaching by adding three more parables. He kind of concludes his teaching with these three. Three more parables that warn his followers to watch and be ready for his return. The first one, which we looked at last week, the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins, uh, we looked at in verses 1 through 13. The second parable is the parable of the talents, which we're going to look at this morning, which covers verses 14 to 30. And then the third is the story of the separation of the sheep from the goats, verses 31 to 46. Now, as we said last time, each of these parables emphasizes an important point that Jesus wants to drive home to, yes, those men back then, but to all of his disciples. And uh, they're all individually important, but together they add intensity to everything he's been teaching, not just in 24 and up to 25, but throughout his ministry. Don't forget now, we're two days from the cross at this point. In some ways, he is kind of, kind of uh, bringing everything he's been telling them to a climax and conclusion, wanting to drive home some of the most important lessons he wants them to, to learn, which is, look, be faithful in serving and watching till I come. Vigilant watching and faithful serving, and especially those disciples who would be living in the days just prior to his return, which is what Matthew 24, verse 34 stresses. They're the generation that's in view, that generation that will be around uh, during the last seven years, the tribulation period, which will lead up to his return. Now, let me just recap quickly the first parable, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. As I said last time, this first parable has to be, I believe, one of the most misunderstood and misapplied of all the parables that Jesus gave during his earthly ministry. Many Christians read these verses in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, about a wedding and a bridegroom, and they jump to the conclusion that the virgins represent the church, the ten virgins. But as we pointed out last week, and if you weren't here, get the CD, or you can go online and listen to it for free. But uh, the virgins are actually bridesmaids, bridesmaids, who in that culture were customarily single, which meant they were virgins. And they represent, listen, Israel, not the church. The church is not in view here, as we pointed out last week in this parable. Jesus mentions the bridegroom. He mentions the bridesmaids, but the bride is not mentioned. Why is that? 
because she's not the focus here, all right? These guys want to know, what are going to be the signs of your second coming? He begins to tell them the signs that will take place in that last seven-year period, the Great Tribulation period. Well, the church isn't going to be around for those things. We're going to be raptured before the Tribulation period begins. The church is not the focus. Right now, the focus is Israel. He calls these, uh, these Jews wise and foolish, but he calls them virgins, okay? And in Revelation 14, let me just point this one passage out. In Revelation 14, verses 3 and 4, let me read to you what John writes, okay? He said, They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, listen, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So we know in chapter 7 that God seals 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes. They become the 144,000 which are evangelists like Paul the Apostle during the tribulation period. And so Israel, in the tribulation period, listen to me, is going to know the Messiah's coming is near. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they're Christians, but they're Jewish evangelists. They correspond to the five wise virgins in this parable. But they're going to be shouting it from the housetops, you might say, that Messiah's coming is near. But not all Israel will be spiritually prepared for his coming when he finally does come. His coming will be sudden and unexpected to many Jews, even though the signs are unmistakable. See, in its primary application, this parable was directed again at the Jews. They were God's chosen people. They were the ones that God called originally to be a light to the world, right? They were the ones that God gave his truth to, his word. And they were the ones that were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And their whole history should have been a preparation for the coming of Messiah. Sadly, they weren't ready for his first coming, and tragically, many of them will be caught off guard at his second coming. Jesus emphasizes this in something he said in Matthew 13, Luke 13, if you wouldn't mind turning there quickly. Here he's talking about how that many Jews are going to be caught off guard, unprepared when the Lord finally comes at his second coming, and they will be excluded from the kingdom age. He said in Luke 13, verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. These are Jews, obviously. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. So obviously he's talking to the Jewish people, how that they were the people of God, chosen by God to be a light to the world. They didn't live up to that calling, that potential. And many of them were caught off guard at his first coming and they rejected him. And the Many more will be caught off guard when he comes a second time, and they will be excluded from the kingdom. 
The second parable is the parable of the talents. And we pick this up in verse 14, where Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now, it's not difficult to see that Jesus is the master in this parable, and that the far country he travels to is heaven when he returned back to his father after his resurrection and ascension. The three servants, again, represent Israelites living during the tribulation period, some believing, others unbelieving. Now, don't let it throw you that they're all called servants of the master. It doesn't mean that they're all saved. In many places in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to collectively as the servants of God, even though many Jews were not technically saved. Now, since the church will be raptured to heaven before the tribulation period begins, the responsibility will then be placed upon Israel to be a light in the darkness. That's what happens in Revelation 7 when God begins to seal, or does seal, 144,000 Jews. He saves them, he seals them, and he sends them out to be a light in the world. Okay, a light in the world. You see, you have to understand that Israel, again, was originally intended by God to be a light to the world. They turned inward, though. They, they began to see that they were special, that God only loved the Jewish people. That was wrong, of course. God said that in you, in your Messiah, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a promise God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 3. But the Jews, they we're open to proselytizing Gentiles. It was never high, a high priority. And, and if a Gentile did convert to Judaism, in the Jewish mind, they were always a second-class citizen because the Jewish people were God's chosen. They were special above all the people on the face of the... God only really loved the Jews. That was the mentality. And so they stopped really being a light and culminated when they crucified their own Messiah. And at that point, as God had told had prophesied that the prophet Daniel, that God had set aside 490 years to deal and to use exclusively Israel. 483 of those years would be consecutive. From the time the commandment went forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until Messiah came, those years would be consecutive. We know that they started with the order from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, March 14, 445 B.C., if you add those years to that starting point, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem declaring himself to be the Messiah. Of course, he was rejected. Four days later, they crucified him. At that point, God's prophetic time clock for Israel stopped with one seven-year period left, and God inserted into that period between the first and second coming of Christ a new people that would be a light to the world, the church, his chosen generation in this church age. Now, when the rapture happens, the church age will officially come to an end. And God will again turn toward Israel to be the instrument through which he is going to bring the light of his truth to this world. And see, this is what Jesus is talking about. The master gives his servants these riches. We'll talk about those in a moment. This, this great wealth. These are the riches of God, the gospel. And they are to share it with the people of this world at that time, the time of the tribulation period. They're going to be the light in the darkness after the church is gone. Now, a talent was not an ability, as we would generally think of 
when God gives a person the ability to sing really well or play an instrument or, or perform on stage, that kind of thing, all right? A talent back then was a measure of weight, a measure of weight usually connected to a valuable metal like copper, gold, or as it is in this case, the most common kind of talent used in commerce, silver. Silver. Now, a Jewish talent, and you're going to get different uh, views on what exactly it was, how much it weighed. It's not important exactly. Think of it this way. A Jewish talent weighed about 100 pounds. And a silver talent was equal to 20 years' wage, which means, guys, this master entrusted his servants with a considerable amount of money. This wasn't pocket change, okay? This wasn't pocket change. He, con- he committed into their care and trust a considerable amount of money. As we're going to see, the things of God are not trifles. They're not trifles. The truths of God are the most important things in the entire world because they alone can bring eternal life. But the talents symbolically don't represent abilities. They represent, listen, responsibilities. Or in other words, ministry opportunities that we are responsible to carry out faithfully. These will be given to them, to the Jews in the tribulation period, according, by God, according to his grace. And this is an important lesson I want you to not miss, okay? Uh, you need to understand that with regard to this parable, the talents aren't abilities. That's true. They're, they're not abilities, technically. They are ministry responsibilities, which are large or small, depending on the amount of grace given to each servant by the Holy Spirit at that time. Look, whether we're talking about the church now or Israel in the tribulation period, some of God's servants have been given more grace than others with regard to spiritual gifts and ministry opportunities to then use for the glory of God. The the thing I want you to see here is that every one of us has been given gifts by God in different amounts, different proportions, and in different um, amounts of grace to be used. Turn to Romans 12. Because this does work its way into the whole idea of this parable. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul the Apostle is talking about spiritual gifts. And he says in verse 6, Having then gifts, given to us by the Holy Spirit, gifts differing according to, listen, the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. Or he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And what Paul the Apostle is saying is, every one of us has been given these grace gifts by God. Some of us have been given more than others in the way of ministry opportunities and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Just because God gives one person the gift of teaching and another person the gift of teaching, The one person might be given a gift to teach a uh, Sunday school class. Very important minister. Another might be given a gift of teaching to teach thousands in a conference setting week to week. God gives us different gifts according to his grace. And it's true, and I don't want to confuse you. I think I'm going to. It's true that the talents don't represent abilities. They represent ministry opportunities. But listen... Those ministry opportunities are given to us by God according to our ability. They themselves are not abilities, the talents, but they are given to us according to the ability God has given to each of us. For example, if God gave five talents, we'll say, to a person with minimal ability, 
he or she would be destroyed by the weight of the responsibility. And likewise, the person gifted greatly by God, who was then only given a one-talent ministry, in other words, a very small ministry opportunity to use that great gift, well, he or she, their giftedness would be wasted, and no doubt they would become discouraged and frustrated. So God gives us gifts according to the ability he has given us, and then gives us opportunities to use those gifts. That's an important point. We're not all the same, but we're all important, okay? Now, in Matthew 25, verse 16, we read, Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug, went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought his five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained more, five more talents beside them. You can almost hear the excitement in the servant's voice. This was not a drudgery. He totally enjoyed serving his master and was thrilled to stand before him on that day to say, Look, Lord, look what I've done in your name. Here's what I've accomplished for your name. And what did the Lord say? He said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, as Jesus said in verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came. That's no doubt a reference to his second coming. The Lord Jesus has been away now for 2,000 years. And we believe his coming is near. And I believe the statement by Jesus to this faithful servant, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let me paraphrase what I believe the Lord is saying. He is saying, enter into the joy of the messianic kingdom, where because of your faithfulness, you will be made ruler over various cities on the earth. You see, guys, whatever God has called you to do right now for him, if you do it with all your heart faithfully, when the Lord comes back to establish the millennial kingdom, he will give to you greater positions of authority. Over you're gonna, We're going to reign with him. Remember the scriptures talk about that? We're going to reign with him. He'll reign visibly from Jerusalem over the whole earth. And we will be under him, ruling in his authority over various cities. You say, are you sure about that? Some guy after first service challenged me on that. Well, look, all right. You sure? It's, where does it say that? Well, in Luke 19, again, you have to turn there, but Jesus gives a similar parable, the parable of the minus. A little different uh, parable, but the same basic lesson. And at one point, he says to the servant who used the Lord's money wisely and, and multiplied it, he said, well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. So in the kingdom age, that's part of the reward is going to be that we who are faithful to the Lord now, whatever he gave you to do, we're going to be ruling with him then over various cities. Well, Matthew 25, verse 22. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Notice, he says the same thing, right? The guy that had five and earned five more, 
He says the same thing to the guy who had two and earned two more. Aren't you glad that as Christians we are not rewarded on commit? We're not salesmen for Jesus. And we don't serve him based on commission. It's not how much or how big our ministry was that we are rewarded on the basis of. It's how faithful we were in doing whatever we did for the Lord. It's, it's always been about how hard we work for him, how faithfully we serve him. And again, in whatever ministry he's called us to do. Didn't Paul the Apostle say in 1 Corinthians 4.2, it is only required of a steward, and we're all stewards of God's stuff. It's only required of a steward that they be found what? Faithful. Faithful. I'm so glad Paul didn't say, look, stewards will be rewarded by how big their ministries are, you know, or that kind of thing. No, how faithful you were in serving him. Matthew 25, verse 24. Jesus said, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord... I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the crown. Look, there you have what is yours. The third servant had nothing but insult and excuses for his master. He accused the master of being hard and unreasonable, reaping where he had not sown and gathering where he had not scattered seed. He excused himself from all service based uh, on the fact that he was scared. He, he feared losing the Lord, his master's money. I think that was an excuse, really. I think he just was lazy. But he claims on the basis of fear of losing the master's money, he chose rather to do nothing with it and simply bury it in the ground so that he could present it back to the master when he finally came. Listen, guys, there are lazy Christians in the body of Christ, no doubt about it but they're not the ones in view here, okay? I believe personally this servant, and this was directed primarily at Israel during the tribulation period, but look, I believe this servant in this parable was an unbeliever. I think that's the point, okay? I believe he was an unbeliever. Why do I say that? Because I don't believe any genuine servant of Jesus Christ would think about their master that way. Oh, you're a hard man. You know, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you haven't scattered seed. No, no... True believer is going to think that way about their master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Plus, when they stand before him, they're not going to cop an attitude with him. Like this guy. I can just see on the day of judgment, people copping an attitude with the Lord, you know? To me, that's a hard and unbeliever, right? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if that stuff is coming out of your mouth, you know, baseless accusations against the Lord's character, you know, insults and stuff like that, well... That, to me, is coming from the heart, and that reveals an unbelieving heart. Because no true Christian would ever think of Jesus Christ in that way. No true Christian would stand before him and give him uh, a, uh, an insulting response. You know, when the Lord asked him, why, haven't you, why didn't you serve me? Why did you bury the talent I gave you in the ground? <laughs> why serve you? You're a hard guy. You, don't, you, don't, you, you take advantage of people and, and gain what others... Uh, work to give you I, I just didn't feel like I wanted to do that you know what to me that's the heart of an unbeliever verse 26 but his Lord answered and said to him you wicked and lazy servant now he's not a, the, the master here is not agreeing with the with the servant's assessment he's just repeating it back to him okay you know by your words you'll be justified by your words you'll be what 
condemned. Jesus is basically saying, look, if this is what you thought, then you should have acted accordingly. He said, you wicked and lazy servant, you know I reap where I did not sow and gather where I have not scattered seed, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Bottom line, there is no excuse for doing nothing for the Lord. No excuse for doing nothing. Look, let me just stop here and insert this. We talk about these talents being gifts, being opportunities to serve God. Listen to me. Let's get real basic. The greatest gift God has given to us outside of our salvation is the gift of life. There is no excuse for God giving us life. And the Bible says every breath we take is another gift from God. There is no excuse for taking our lives and burying them in the ground, so to speak, with inactivity, only living for our own pleasures, our own desires, using all the blessings God has given us, life and things to eat and and a beautiful place to live and and, and providing for our, our necessities and using all of that only for our own selfish pleasure and doing nothing for him, there's no excuse for that. No excuse for that. And I know some would say, but I can't serve God like I want to. Uh, I'm handicapped, or I'm a young mom with with young children, and I can't go on the mission field. Hey, that's fine. That's fine. That's not what this is about. There are some people who can't physically go to the mission field, we'll say. But you can pray, can't you? And you can use your money to support the work of God in these places. Isn't that what you think the bankers in this parable are? You know, if you couldn't have, if you if you didn't want to use the opportunities I gave you, couldn't you have at least taken them and given the money to the bankers to that I might have interest? What does that mean? Look, if you can't go to the mission field, we'll say, give the money to a missions organization that does send missionaries. Paul the apostle said. One plant, another waters, God gives the increase. Talk about ministry. And the idea is, look, God will reward every one of us based on what we did to support and promote his work. And again, some people would love to go and serve God in a deeper way or in a different location, but they can't right now. But they can sure pray. They can sure support that work financially. And you know what? When Jesus comes, you will be rewarded. Okay? He will not say to you because you didn't physically go you're not going to be he will say to you well done for doing what you could do you know david wanted to build god a temple right god says david you can't because you've shed too much blood you're a man of war your son solomon will build me a temple a house david said okay fine if i can't physically build a thing i'm gonna spend the rest of my life gathering the stuff the, the, the gold and the bronze and the silver and everything that's going to be needed to build it. If I can't build it physically, I can sure finance the deal. Remember what David's men said to David? Those guys who were too tired from battle to go out and chase the Amalekites who had taken captive David and all the, his mighty men, their, their families, their wives and children and possessions. And so some of the guys were just too worn out from battle. So they stayed back in the camp. David took the guys that could go, and they defeated the Amalekites. They came back with all this spoil. And the guys who went to the battle said, we're not going to share this with the guys who stayed back in the camp. It's not fair. And what did David say? David, a type of Jesus Christ. He said, guys, that's wrong. He says, those who stay back and guard the what? The stuff. I love it. Those who stay back and guard the stuff will share equally with those who go and take the spoil. 
That's a real, that's a ministry principle. Some people can physically go and fight the battles of God in foreign fields. I'm a stuff guarder. I, I, you know, right now you, <laughs> but I can take some of this stuff and support the work of God. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. All right. Matthew 25 verse 28. Therefore, take the helmet from him. Excuse me, the helmet. What am I talking about? <laughs> Therefore, give him some glasses. Uh, Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And guys, I think the lesson here is obvious. If we keep wasting the opportunities that God gives us to serve him, guess what? He'll just remove the opportunity, give them to somebody else who is faithfully serving him. Look, we all blow it. We all have been faced with opportunities that we didn't make good with, that we didn't capitalize on. That happens with all of us. Just don't let it be a pattern. Learn from it, right? Say, okay, you know, I really should have done, I mean, I I knew God was calling me to do that little small group or or witness to that person. I I didn't do it. But God, by your grace, I never want to miss another opportunity again. That's, That's fine, okay? That's fine. But we just have to realize that if those Christians who are continually not wanting to serve God and use the opportunities he sends their way, after a while he just stops sending them opportunities. And the Bible, Paul puts it this way, he puts them up on where? On a shelf. He doesn't really take them out of service, they take themselves out. He just sticks them on a shelf. Then they wonder why everybody else is being used by God and not me. Because when God brought you the opportunities, you didn't want to do anything with them. Now, now look, Whereas the parable of the ten virgins stressed the importance of watching for the Lord's return. That's important. This parable stresses that our readiness isn't to just be passive waiting, but faithful serving as we're watching for the Lord's return. In other words, making the most of the opportunities God gives us now. That's important. Or we'll give to the Jews during the tribulation period. Look. Laziness and serving the Lord can fall into two basic categories for the believer. For the believer. First of all, it can be a laziness due to worldliness. Again, the more you get into the world as a Christian, the less you're going to want to serve God. The more you get into the world, you start living for yourself, and taking it easy, and just going out and it's all about pleasure and fun, and not serving God really. Well, the more you live for the world, the less you're going to live for God. So laziness could be due to worldliness. Secondly, though, here's one that I don't think a lot of people think of. I'm going to make some enemies, no doubt, with this one. Secondly, laziness would also include those who have a hyper view of God's sovereignty that says, why pray or evangelize or go to the mission field or do anything for the Lord? After all, God is going to do what he wills regardless. And so that... Theology has crippled a lot of people from serving God. What's the point? I mean, God's God. He's going to do whatever he wants. Well, ultimately, that's true. But wouldn't you want God to do what he's going to do with you as opposed to somebody else because you didn't want to get involved? But look, and I've said this before. Let me say it again. Laziness, and I believe that's the case with this, this servant and this, this third servant in this parable. Laziness towards serving the Lord could be the result 
of someone, we'll say in our context, someone who comes to church but doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look, there are two areas, guys, and I have to be careful because they're not um, ironclad, but there are two areas that I have seen that indicate that a person could really be a child of God. First is in the area of their giving. When Jesus Christ comes into your heart, you are so overwhelmed with his generosity toward you, how he's forgiven you your sins, how he's adopted you into his family as his child. You just want to see other people saved too, which means you want to give to the work of God because it's important to you to see people saved as God saved you. You know, it was D.L. Moody who said, I know more about a person's spirituality by looking at their checkbook than their prayer book. You know, we write out our prayers, we can be pretty flowery and sound real spiritual, can't we? And in those days, of course, everyone journaled. And if you looked at some of the journals, you would see, oh my goodness, Paul the Apostle. Look at this, writing. Wow, you look at the guy's life, he's selfish, he's carnal. He doesn't give to the work of God. Moody says, look, show me a guy whose, whose money is where his mouth is, and I'll show you somebody who's probably walking with the Lord. And the same thing is true with serving. In fact, today, a lot of people would rather give their money than their time because time is so precious to us. And so whenever I see a person who is willing to take of their time to use it to serve the Lord, that to me indicates this, this person knows Jesus. Now, as I said in the first service, there are a lot of generous unbelievers. And there are a lot of people who go to liberal churches that give a lot of money to those churches. doesn't mean they're saved. But I just, I've noticed that if a person is going to an evangelical church, a church that teaches the truth, and they are giving money to God to support the work of, of God, that's a good indication that they know the Lord. Well, this servant, again, I don't believe he's saved. The way he talks about his, to his Lord, the way he thinks about his Lord, the way he doesn't use his life to serve the Lord. And I think Jesus bears that out in verse 30 when he said, Cast the unprofitable servant into, into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, guys, this is a reference primarily to the Jews who aren't living for the Lord when he comes back at his second coming and are therefore excluded from entering the millennial kingdom. Jesus, again, makes, alludes to this in Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, And I say to you that many will come from east to west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is the millennial kingdom. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the idea is many will come from east and west and be members of the kingdom. This is Gentiles from all over the world. But the, the, those who are the children of the kingdom, the Jewish people. Many of them will be cast out because they didn't believe in their own Messiah. And ultimately, guys, as you no doubt know this, the outer darkness is a reference to the final judgment of all unbelievers, Jew and Gentile, in the lake of fire, otherwise called hell. Now, guys, as we bring this to a close, let me just say this. One of the important things that this parable stresses is something a lot of Christians don't think about too often. This parable demonstrates that there are sins of commission and then there are sins of omission. Remember, sin isn't just doing what's wrong. It's also not doing what's right. In the book of Judges, which you do not have to turn there, at one point the enemies of God came against Israel. And all the villages, towns, tribes, families gathered together 
to fight against the enemy, except for one village, one town called Meros. And after God gave the victory to his people, he sends an angel to single out this one town. And listen to what he said. He said, curse you Meros. Curse you bitterly, your inhabitants, because you did not come to the battle of the Lord, the battle of the Lord against this mighty enemy. See, theirs was a sin of omission. Theirs was a sin of inactivity. They didn't do what was right. Not that they did what was wrong. That's how we typically think of sin. It was that they didn't do what was right. That's an important point. I mean, didn't the writer of the Proverbs say, Proverbs 3.27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is, is in the power of your hand to do so. Again, if you have power to do somebody good and you don't do it, it's a sin in God's eyes. It's the sin of inactivity, of doing nothing, of omission. Look, Charles Spurgeon said that it is spiritually unhealthy, spiritually unhealthy for a Christian not to serve the Lord. That's true. You cannot become all that God wants you to be if you're not plugged into the body and using your gifts to serve others. You can't do it. But I'm going to take it one step farther. I'm going to say not only is it spiritually unhealthy, it's also a sin. It's sinful. It's sinful because we have been saved to serve, not to sin. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. Remember what Paul the Apostle said? He said we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. We belong to him. We're his slaves, the Bible says. He's our master. As such, we don't have the right to our lives any longer. Our whole life belongs to him, and now we are to seek him as to what he would say to us about what he wants us to do for his glory. Remember what Paul said in Road to Damascus when the Lord Jesus knocked him to the ground? And said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Let my Lord speak to a servant. What do you have to say? That that's our, should be our attitude. Once we know that Jesus has redeemed us, our attitude should be, Lord, what can I do now to serve you because I belong to you? My life is not my own. To waste God's time is a sin. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be doing something for him 24 hours a day. But let's face it, there's a lot of Christians who are doing nothing for him and making excuses. One author, I think, put it well when he said, some think that readiness for Jesus' return is a rather mystical thing. It really isn't. It is a matter of being about our Father's business. In light of this parable, we must ask ourselves, what have we done with our knowledge, the knowledge of his word, our time, our money, our abilities? The sins of omission may ultimately be more dangerous than the sins of commission. End quote. Look, guys. The great principle of this parable is not one that we don't know. It's one that we need to be reminded of. The great principle of this parable that Jesus wanted all of his people to understand is that someday, listen to me, every one of us is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of how we use the gifts that he gave us, primarily the way we lived our lives. But all the talents, all the opportunities, according to the grace of God, we're going to stand before him and give an account. Now, I'm not implying that like this last servant, who I believe was a flattered unbeliever, he went to hell. 
Those of us who are really Christians, we're going to stand. Be- and the Bible says many will be ashamed at, at Jesus appearing. What does that mean? They're going to heaven because they're saved by grace. It's just that they're going to be ashamed because when he comes and they stand before him, they have nothing to give him in the way of things that they have done for his name. They have nothing to show for their time on the earth. And I think Jesus wants to reinforce in all of our thinking, look, there's a day coming. And we're going to have to stand before the Lord and give it account for everything we have done and how we've used his, his opportunities and how we've lived for him, for his glory. And so in the light of that, listen, for the child of God especially, there are two things we must do. First, find out what God wants us to do. What is our talent or talents? Okay, Lord, what are you calling me to do? And I want to challenge you guys to really make that a priority in your prayer as we are learning in our Experiencing God study by Henry Blackaby. God is always at work. God is always working. And we need to pray and ask God to show us where he's working so we can join that work. His revelation is is his invitation. He wants us involved. Jesus is where I am. There my servant must be also. Well, Jesus is working. He said on the earth, I'm always about my father's business. And if we belong to him, if we're his slaves, his servants, I need to ask my master, Master, Lord Jesus, where are you working? I need to get over there, wherever that is, and start serving my master. And look, to some of us, God gives a very small ministry. And sometimes that's upsetting because, you know, we would like to do more for the Lord. But look, if, you know, God has given you one talent, a one-talent ministry, that doesn't mean that's a insignificant. It might be small. It doesn't mean it's an insignificant ministry. Look, guys, I'll be all, in all honesty, I believe I'm a one-talent ministry, okay? Or God has given me a one-talent ministry. I'm not preaching to thousands of people. I don't have a nationwide deal where I'm, everyone knows who I am, like a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie. But that's okay. I've never considered this small church an insignificant church. And I hope that you, you can tell by the way I present God's word to you every week that I have studied, I have prayed, I have been thrown something together at the last minute because you're not that important because this is a small church. I hope you can tell that I labor over these messages. Why? Because I consider it a great privilege to serve our master. And all of you are precious to him because you were purchased with his blood. So I don't consider a small ministry an insignificant ministry, and neither should you. I heard a pastor one time of a big church tell me, he says, don't worry, don't, don't covet a big minister, a big church. I said, why? Parking is a headache. Parking is a headache. Okay, why? I have no parking headaches. I don't even own the parking lot. So somebody else can have a headache. But but let me say this, and I promise you we're we're almost done. There are many times when the Lord starts us out with a one-talent ministry, we'll say. And if we're faithful, he will increase our talents by giving us greater ministry opportunities and responsibilities. I think that was the point of verse 28. Look, in the book of Acts, Philip started out in the food pantry ministry, right? And went on to become an evangelist. Timothy started out as a gopher for Paul. Go for this, go for that. And eventually, God called him to be a pastor. My pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, 
the first 17 years of his ministry, pastored small churches of less than 100 people. But he was faithful in the little things. And eventually, God called him to a worldwide ministry. The Bible says, do not despise the days of small things. A small ministry, guys, isn't necessarily a failure. And listen to me, a big ministry isn't necessarily a success. In the end times, Jesus praises a small church like Philadelphia. He says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's a success in his eyes. And to a very large, wealthy church like Laodicea, he said, I'm knocking on the door. Will you let me in? I'm not even a part of your church. A few years ago, I was reading a devotional. And the author of this devotional on this one particular day said, how many of you have ever heard the name John Spurgeon? I had never heard it. He said, we would never probably ever have heard the name John Spurgeon if it wasn't for his famous son, Charles Spurgeon. But you see, John was a faithful pastor for 45 years. He served God faithfully, but in relative obscurity. Unlike his son, Charles, who served with great notoriety and became very famous. And he ended this devotional with these words that I've never forgotten. He said, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not going to say, well done, thou good and famous servant. He's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And may God give us grace to be faithful in whatever he's called us to do for him. It doesn't matter how important you think it is or not important. Everything you do for him is important. You can't give a cup of cold water to one of his disciples in his name without losing your reward. So let's serve our Lord with joy, no matter what it is. It's nothing is small in his eyes. All ministries are important. And if we serve him faithfully, we'll hear him say to every one of us, well done, good and faithful servants. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you've taken nobodies like us. We don't deserve to serve you in the smallest way. And yet, Lord, you are so good. You're so gracious. You save us, and you give us gifts, and you give us opportunities to use those gifts for your glory. Father, give us the grace not to bury those opportunities in the dirt and to do nothing. Give us grace, Lord, to serve you faithfully in whatever you've called us to do, that when you come, we might hear you say, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful in a few things. Now, enter into the joy of your Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.